0: Welcome everyone to episode number 21 of Matt Memories from Madison Square Garden, a 50-year retrospective, of the early years of the WWF, the WWF, and the WWE madison square garden the mecca of professional wrestling a building that every wrestler wanted to wrestle in we record one show a month to coincide with the 50th anniversary of a wrestling house show at madison square garden and to look back at all these shows a man who went to every wrestling house show at madison square garden for five years straight starting in august 30th 1971 mr wrestling himself john Rizzi. john how you doing
1: How you doing, my friend?
0: It's a little cooler where I am than where you are. Uh, L.A. doesn't have humidity, but Tennessee does.
1: Yeah, I I, I can say it's hot, hotter than hell here right now. It's uh, heat index over 100, and I was outside a little bit earlier today trying to get my walk in, and I had to cut it short after halfway through, and I was like... I'm just sweating too much and it's just too freaking humid. So, um,
0: the, 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 people don't understand the humidity in the south. I, I'm from New York, John's from New York. We get humid days, things are humid, but the southern humidity it's a different animal.
1: Yeah, it is. And we're in this incredible heat wave right now, anyway. So, uh, it certainly uh, seems to get worse every year, obviously, for a lot of reasons. But, um, but hey, you do what you can. I'm back in the air conditioned, uh, uh, office now, and uh, looking forward to this episode. And I do want to bring up that uh, we got a great response from the last show with uh, uh, Carrie Silkin. People really liked it, and I know that there are discussions to bring him back, and we'll do that. But yeah, it was fun. I'm sure that it was fun for you as well.
0: I, I love Carrie. He he this is the first time I I've actually met Carrie. And it was just great talking to him and, and discussing stuff, and, and watching you two talk because you're you're so rare, both of you. The way you 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 went to these garden shows, you both went to the same garden shows. You both did th- different things. You both got into the industry, but you never knew each other back then, which I find amazing because you you, you have I think you have a very you're very similar. You both also you both like you know heels. You are both f- fans of heels, like Freddie Blassie. You know you like the heels.
1: Yeah, yeah. We have a great synergy, and uh, he wasn't uh, involved in the business when I was early on. You know he got. Involved later on obviously with the things he did and he was a ticket broker for a while and then he wanted to obviously ring a ring of honor and uh that was probably is uh what he's most known for great guy just great storyteller really good friend these days yeah yeah I-, I haven't known him for a lot of years i mean i just really uh have been communicating with him over the last few but uh he's a great dude good people, good people. It is the summer now and your hands are
0: full. you got three podcasts going on. you got your Patreon of course yeah. your Mets. Uh, bring us up to date with everything. How, how, how are the podcasts going? How, how's the Patreon? How are your Mets?
1: Well, the Mets uh, are in the middle of a little bit of a comeback. I mean, the season uh, in all intents and purposes is already over. I mean, they've lost so many games but they've won uh, the day we tape this. They're on a four-game winning streak. They're out on the West Coast and they're heading into the All-Star break. I don't have any hopes for the season to be be turned around. I just want them to see if they could play competitive baseball and kind of stay in it if they can. So at least there's meaningful games to watch instead of just you know watching it just to watch it. And I watch it anyway. But uh, it was a disappointing uh, season so far in a big, big way. So it is baseball. You know, you never know what's going to happen year to year. No matter how much you spend on your payroll and. Now, obviously, uh, we have a very smart owner who's a billionaire many times over, so I'm sure that he'll make the changes that are necessary at the end of the season. He's not he's not in a panic mode, which is great. He's not a Steinbrenner or he's going to fire everybody. He's going to evaluate the team after the season and see what happens. So um, I'm excited to see what 2024 brings.
0: And speaking of George Steinbrenner, uh, your other podcast, uh, the Gibby cast that you have, uh, you have a former Yankee coming on. Well, by the time this airs, it's already out.
1: Yeah, we uh, have guests every week on the Gibby show and, uh, you know, looked at the rankings today up in Canada again, and we're a solid number three. We never drop out of the top five ball baseball podcasts in Canada. And it's really cool because we're independently owned and operated. So we do it ourselves. Uh, so that means that uh, the advertisers that come in like Miller Lite, Tim Horton's sports interaction. I mean, this is revenue that we're generating. But what I really love about it, because Gibby is so beloved by everyone, we have an incredible... Uh, lineup of guests. Each and every week he brings somebody on. And the guy that you're referring to is someone I'm very excited about talking about and talking to and getting to meet. And that's Don Mattingly, Donnie Baseball, you know, number 23, the Yankees and uh, one of the legends. He's the bench coach for the Toronto Blue Jays right now. So um, it's going to be interesting. And it's kind of uh, an interesting story is when I was in the minor leagues in 81, uh, working with the Mets. And when Gibby was my roommate, the Yankees had an affiliate down in the same league in the South Atlantic League. And they were the Greensboro Hornets. I was the PA announcer as well as the everything else that you did. And, you know, every time uh, one of our pitchers would strike out one of the opposing batters, I'd play the Queen song, Another One Bites the Dust. And there was a situation that, uh, and I and I really believe it was Don, Donnie. I'm going to do a little more research, but I do remember when he struck out in a game against the Shelby Mets. I played that song and then he turned around and he looked up and he pointed the bat at me like, you know, you're an asshole, <laughs> And then I got reprimanded by the owner of the team. And you got to be careful with that song. But, you know, I'll bring that up and see if he remembers. And uh, I just want to make sure, you know, I'm going to look at his stats and make sure that that was actually him. But I, in all intents and purposes, in my memory, it was him.
0: That's great. And, you know, we bring you this podcast free of charge. We love doing it. I We love that you're listening to it. But to keep the lights on, you know, it's not cheap to do this kind of thing. Oh, well, it's kind of cheap. It's cheaper than other... It's, it's not like cable TV or million dollar movies, but there's still a price here, so w- w- it helps us out a lot is the Patreon, patreon.com slash John what John, what is new on the Patreon as of this week?
1: Uh We always are adding content, as you know, uh, and now on the Pro Wrestling Spotlight podcast, it is uh, 30 years uh, to the weeks that we're in uh, uh, Southeast Asia on the IWAS, International Wrestling All-Stars Tour, which we'll be covering in the next episode, so I'm pulling a bunch of clips from that tour back stage candid footage uh, to put up on Patreon. The producer, creative director that I work with, Marsh, over there, we're, we're actually exploring different ways to get the fans involved. Uh, we We have a run of the shows that's going to continue on. And then it's like when the shows are over, what do you do next? So I'm kind of thinking that what we're going to do is start it again, From April of 89, but this time bring on guests like Sunny Blaze and, you know, people who were around during that time period. But we also want to get the fan involvement. So we may come up with a, you know, they get the opportunity to come on our feed and ask questions as the show is going on. So uh, we're contemplating it. I'm going to do a Zoom call for patrons, kind of discuss some ideas, because once it's over, I think fans are going to certainly want to continue the tradition and listen to the shows all over again with a different fresh coat of paint on them, uh, different from when we first started the podcast with Brian last in 2019 so lots to come
0: lots to come uh what i find interesting about it is like i i do this myself i'm i'm not big on the new stuff um but i do go back and watch over a lot of the older stuff and i watch it again and again like you do old movies or something and i know listening to the podcast your podcast i like listening to it because a lot of times you oh i forgot about that oh this and they're talking about stuff be before it happens um what i mean by that is They'll say like we don't know what's going to happen with the Ultimate Warrior. Well, now we do. But on mm-hmm. the podcast, you talk all about you know the the that is going on there. You know, and you're listening to something that is not like saying like oh we're talking about it in, in the past tense. It's all the future. So I enjoy listening to it because what you're talking about with the with the drug trials with everything you talk about with, with your tour, these are all things coming up and things that are happening then at the time. So it's nice to go back and listen to it and, and find out what was on people's minds at that time, not looking back like an
1: armchair quarterback. Uh, That's what I love about it, too, because it always sparks my memory. Every time I put a tape into that machine and I upload it and I listen to a show that I hadn't heard in 30 years, it sparks the memory. And then Marsh finds the clips and asks the questions. And it always triggers something that happened 30 years ago. I mean, I'm in a very unique situation where you can actually get to relive your life over again and who gets the chance to do that and to kind of go back and all right yeah i do remember this i remember where i was personally professionally financially and it triggers memories each and every episode so once we complete the cycle because the show is very erratic now. Now now it got to the point where I'm promoting wrestling. I'm involved with the AAA. We're getting ready to do a show there. I'm in Southeast Asia. I bounce around the radio stations as I did. I mean, there's, there's all of this stuff that's coming up. And there are shows that I failed to tape or there's a missing month here and there. So uh, the show actually went off the air without even a goodbye. I mean, the last show was in uh, January of 1995 and then I just disappeared. So looking at the archives that I have right now, and I quit, I, I got disgusted with the wrestling business and I actually quit in 19, in August, was it was in August of 93 or November of 93. It was right after the convention, the last convention I did. I went on the air and I said, I'm done with the business, I'm getting out, uh, at least f- for the show. I continued on with AAA for a little bit and I did some IWS stuff. We did you know, a show in Venezuela, we did a few other shows. And then I returned in August of 94. So I'm off the air from November 93 to August of 94 no shows no involvement and then I hop back on, on WGBB for what is the final weeks of the show because I did that from August of 94 to January 95 and then it goes away so uh, it's an interesting um as they call season of your life at the time and now I'm getting to relive it all over again and all the ugliness that it was and and some happiness with some of the things I did so um like I said to start the, the segment of the conversation. Not a lot of people get the opportunity to go back 30 years and kind of relive what they did week after week.
0: Absolutely. You're looking 30 years for that podcast, 50 years for this podcast. And if, if you want to be, be part of this, join us at patreon.com slash John um, It's $5 to get started. There's all kinds of levels. There's, there's a level for everybody. There's a level for yeah, everybody. Yeah, look at it
1: this way, Tim. I mean, uh, uh, bypass one coffee at Starbucks a month and get the opportunity to hear over 200-plus unedited radio shows and all the other content there with different levels. It's really just kind of like, all right, I'm not going to buy Starbucks today. Let me give uh, the Patreon five bucks, and that helps with the production cost of the show. Absolutely, and I, my favorite part is the 8 millimeter
0: films that you shot back in the 70s. Those, those are my favorite parts.
1: Yeah, those are starting to now dwindle, uh, obviously, because I stopped uh, filming I I did, you know, sporadic filming, you know, the rest of 73 and some in 74. And then I just stopped because then I had my photographer's pass and uh, I wasn't shooting movies uh, anymore. I was shooting for wrestling magazines.
0: And then we get some of those pictures behind the scenes. What I I love is you had one of Lou Albano that was cropped for the magazine, but you can see it on Patreon, the wide shot, how really wide it was. I thought that was really cool. Yeah. Yeah.
1: The engagement has been really good with some of these old. Uh, photos and I rarely talk about the Matt Memories uh, public Facebook page. And that thing now is just taken off where we got close to 3 million impressions over the last 28 days. It really is blown up. I mean, the pictures that I'm posting up there are getting an enormous amount of engagement from people and people discovering me and the numbers are shooting up. So, uh, you know, we have uh, on on that public page, there are, you know, 5000 people who like it and follow it and. Uh, But uh, each picture I put up is just getting tremendous amount of views and impressions. And and, uh, now I I opened up a Thread account. I guess there's the new platform uh, owned by Meta and Mark Zuckerberg. So I'm on Thread now at John Arisi and I'm putting shit up on Instagram, you know, almost every day. So there's a lot going on. And and the, the YouTube channel. Uh, which is youtube.com slash pro wrestling spotlight. I mean, all the podcast episodes are on there, but also all the content that I put up on there. And now we've just surpassed uh, 1,500 uh, uh, subscribers and uh, we got enough views now uh, to be able to monetize. Uh, so uh, that is a new development. So, yeah, I mean, as Marsh tells me, I mean, people really know who you are. I mean, it's just growing and growing. So uh, I'm happy to be able to do this with you to go back. Fifty years, and just to keep growing this history and this uh, this opportunity for fans of old school wrestling to kind of get a sense of what it was really like when it was happening, not just 50 years ago, but 30 years ago with Pro Wrestling Spotlight and all the photographs that are in the archives as well. So I enjoy providing content for everybody. So cough up 5 bucks or 10 bucks or whatever it is a month. Go to patreon.com slash John Arezzi. You're, if you're a fan of old school, that's the place to get it.
0: We're not going to be around forever. I know this podcast is going to last forever. This will always be out there talking mm-hmm. about the garden, talking about the 90s. And a lot, a lot of people talk about these kind of things as as a fan. They talk about it as a wrestler and what it was like as a wrestler. But as a fan, you know, you were there. You you knew the builds up and you talked about these things as a fan, Now, as you looked at it as a fan. And uh, I, I wanted to just segue into not everyone's going to be around forever. And we lost a superstar um, in professional wrestling since the last time we did our show on June 7th, 2023. We lost WWF and WWF champion, the Iron Sheik at the age of 81. John, I I know you have to have a chic story. You have short stories, but everybody, what about a chic story? Can you give me a chic story?
1: Met him a few times. I never really had any uh, interaction. I never interviewed him, unfortunately. I I think that would have been cool because he was so colorful and he was so uh, outrageous. But uh, he's somebody, as far as losing a guy like that, who fans really beloved because of all the stuff he did. And there's a great biography on him uh, that the WWF produced on A&E. But, you know, his uh, name, uh, Ali Vazari. He went by the name uh, Hosan Kostrov, Colonel Mustafa, the great Hossein. You know, he he had so many different characters and names. He was brought in and out of the WWF. So he had a wonderful career and he was a legitimate tough guy, strong guy. He was a bodyguard for the Shah of Iran uh, and he uh, was a great collegiate athlete. And then after that victory against Bobby Backlund, uh, winning the title and then losing it pretty quickly to Hogan the following month. But that kind of cemented his place in history. And he became this outrageous character. And in the mid 80s, he was part of the cartoons. He was part of the original LJN dolls. And his his character and his legacy grew year after year after year becoming more outrageous he had a great twitter account which was just fabulous to uh listen to and he uh he lived a very full life and he had tragedy in his life too and with his daughter being killed and uh but he was one of the funniest guys always with the jabronis and everything that he did was something so i i would um i would really um like to pay tribute to him here and uh, that's what we're doing by discussing him he was just a unbelievable Hall of Famer and he will be sorely missed as a character in the history of pro wrestling.
0: Oh, what a great character. He was trained by Verne Gagne. Uh, so many people yes. came out of that area, uh, uh, the, the Minnesota area. His debut was 1972. He retired in 2010. His first appearance, I did not know this, John. His first appearance at Madison Square Garden was June 4th, 1979. He won a 20-man battle royal and at the end of the, the winner we get to compete against Bob Backlund for the title of that night. So, so this is, I don't know how big he was in 79. He sure wasn't like the Iron Sheik popular, but he came into the battle royal. He won the battle royal in eight minutes, 17 seconds, beating people like um, Baron Mikel Slacuna. That's for Kerry. Mm-hmm. I, did I say it right that time? I always say it. You did. Bulldog Brower, Dominic DiNucci, Gorilla Monsoon, just to name a few. He went on to win the battle royal. That night, he got beat by Bob Backlund in 30 minutes, 40 seconds. So after doing a battle royal, then later on, he comes back and does 30 minutes with Backlund. That's amazing.
1: Yeah, he had a lot of endurance, and he rarely uh, blew up, as they said. I mean, he could go. The guy could go. And and around that time, I mean, I, I first uh, shot pictures of him in 77 when he was in Dallas. And this young guy, I mean, I, so I have some incredible pictures of him back then, but yeah i mean that first appearance at the garden in 79 i was not there for that uh that was you know during the time that i wasn't really involved in the business at all but uh he uh he certainly made history a number of times and mcmahon liked him you know that was it mcmahon knew he could draw money with him
0: as times change and his character became more relevant mcmahon really really jumped on, on on the bandwagon about that because in 1979 let's say he was june in 1979 i'm trying to think about when was the whole thing with the hostages going on in Iran at that time?
1: Uh, yeah, that was, um, that was around that time. That was, um, that was, yeah, I was in college. And and I remember, because we had a a lot of Iranian students uh, at the university when that happened, and that caused a lot of tension. McMahon knew how to exploit these international tensions. He did. Like, even when he turned Sergeant Slaughter heel and then brought him back as an Iraqi sympathizer, you know?
0: So, we're talking like 79, but now. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and and the Sheik goes around the country, goes to other territories. He comes back to the WWF on December 26, 1983, a sold out show, not only at, you know, uh, the Garden, but at the Felt Forum next door, using the name The Iron Sheik for the first time at the Garden, mm-hmm. beat Bob Backlund 11 minutes. Fifty seconds when all Skolin threw in the towel when the Iron Sheik had Backlund in a camel clutch, and that was that was huge. That was huge, and we we talked about this last time on our last episode when we were talking about Superstar Billy Graham. They don't like letting heels have the title for that long. So twenty eight days later, January twenty third, nineteen eighty four. Another sellout at the Garden, and this time the Sheik loses the title to Hulk Hogan in five minutes, 40 seconds, changing wrestling history forever.
1: Yeah, very, very true, and that was uh, what he would call a transitional champion. That's what McMahon did. Back then, it was transitional. Uh, so you'd give the title to Koloff and he held it for a month and then Morales would take it. Uh, and then uh, Stasiak was a transitional champion for a week. And and with the same thing with Sheik, he held it for a month. But it was the way to take the strap off uh, of the person they wanted to transition from to the tr- person they wanted to tr- transition to. And uh, fortunately for the Iron Sheik, he got that opportunity and it really cemented his legacy and it really created a legend in the wrestling business with him. And he was
0: working for the WWF, WWE for such a long time. I remember, you know, you got the championship runs, but also then he went on to tag team championships. So he was very prominent.
1: Yeah, he was. You know, his um, tag team with Nikolai Volkov, with Freddie Blassie as the manager, and they uh, won the titles uh, at WrestleMania One against Wyndham and Rotunda, I believe. Yep. Um, so, yeah, uh, yeah, he's he's had his share of titles, and he had a great legacy. And uh, as I said, I mean, he's going to be missed because he was one of the real unique ones. And and it's sad anytime you lose a legend like that. Well, let's
0: continue. Let's go to tonight's show, Saturday night, June thirtieth, nineteen seventy three. A very historic show. For a very unusual reason, this card is the first card that is going to be broadcast live on national television. The WWF is on HBO. Now, this is 1973. This is something new. Uh, John, tell me about like HBO back in that time of day. Like, What was HBO like? Was it uh, something that everyone had? Did it only a few people had? do you need cable to get it? How did you get HBO? And, and did the WWF capitalize on this opportunity.
1: HBO home box office, as it's known, really was in its infancy back then. And it was a, a premium service, and cable television was just really starting to emerge. So HBO was the very first what you would call premium channel, where they would have uh, uncut movies with no commercials. Uh, it was a commercial-free network. It was kind of one of the first commercial-free networks, and that's why you paid a premium for it. And at the time, it could have been just a couple of bucks or whatever it was. But they were looking for content, and you know uh, there were classic movies on there that you'd watch for the first time on television without commercials and uncensored, because... Because censorship in television was big back then. You couldn't say certain things, but on HBO, that was it. You could see R rated movies. And whoever made that deal, I'm sure it was um, Vince uh, Sr. and Jr. working in tandem to get that deal done with HBO. At the time, I, I don't think it was exploited the way it could have been. But once again, it was a brand new industry. It might have opened up the eyes of Vince Jr. to see, hey, this is kind of the future. How do we get involved in this cable TV phenomenon? You know, lo and behold, you know, there's a (laughs) there's <laughs> there's there's all, there's everything you could imagine out there now. But HBO for us personally in my household, we didn't get HBO until I know it was after I graduated high school and uh, we had sold our house and moved in West Babylon to a, a place. And that's when we first got HBO. And I, I remember Young Frankenstein on there that I saw for the first time. And, you know, even though I was so deeply involved in wrestling, I wasn't even familiar with at that time in 74 uh show that were being broadcast on hbo so it was kind of like i didn't know yeah you know
0: it, it, it's so crazy like back back in the day you would need to get cable at your house and cable wasn't all over the
1: place it wasn't available all over the country it was available in certain areas there were like 40 channels with yeah cable yeah and it was, what was beautiful about it is you had your local channels and then you would have Superstation WTBS I mean that was on cable so you were able to get that and there were other show uh, networks that were starting to emerge so it wasn't really a lot there were music channels There wasn't a lot of content there wasn't a lot of uh, there wasn't like what we have today I mean I remember cuz the cable box was big and bulky and had these buttons that you would press and there were like 30 channels That you can get. And it was kind of like, holy smokes, 30 channels, because on TV, you know, where I lived in New York, it was channel two was CBS. Channel four was NBC. Channel five was independent. Yep. Uh, So it wasn't a network affiliate. Channel seven was the ABC affiliate. Channel nine was WOR. Uh, Channel 11 was WPIX. And then channel 13 was uh, public broadcasting. That's all you got. Yeah, that was it. And then on UHF, that's where they had Channel 41 and 47, and you needed a separate antenna for that stuff. And and that's where the fuzzy, uh, you know, the fuzzy, you know, you'd go crazy trying to get the picture clear uh, to watch Spanish broadcasting to see wrestling. That was the only way we were able to see it uh, back then until, you know, when on Channel nine. But yeah, what a what a difference! Just thinking back of 50 years ago, and this show was historic because it was the first uh, uh, broadcast uh, by the WWF on national television, HBO. And uh, then I do remember that they formed an alliance with the Madison Square Garden network, and that's where the bulk of the shows uh, became broadcast on in later years. You got to remember, back in the day,
0: paying for television was never heard of. Who? Oh, pays no. for tele- we got television. You got NBC, ABC, CBS. You got PBS. You don't pay for television. Nobody pays for television. That was one of the hardest parts, get selling the idea of television. I know HBO really didn't take off, in my opinion, until like the later 70s.
1: Yeah, very true. I mean, and I, I do remember the cable bill was something in nine or 10 bucks a month, which was still a big expense.
0: Huge. Huge. Well, let's get into tonight's show. Uh, Where'd you get your tickets? Usual place? And uh, was there a TV build-up for this card?
1: Uh, You know, there is a typical... This is all typical stuff. I mean, the way I got my tickets, it was... Ticketron, as always, um, you know, I wasn't that smartened up yet, but those days were going to be coming pretty soon about being able to finagle and bribe the ticket seller and getting those uh, premium first few ring ringsides. But this was the typical stuff. I wasn't that excited about the show even going into it because I didn't think it was an incredible card. But, you know, you don't miss it. You go anyway. I don't even think I shot any movies at this show or even shot any photographs at this show. I just didn't even don't know if I brought my camera or not. Uh, I was there because I remember it. I wasn't there as uh, taking pictures or even movies on this particular show. As they say in Bad Santa, they can't all be winners. Let's go to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, but I, but I was getting pissed off too because it was like the seats I was trying to get, they were getting kind of worse. They were in the corner instead of like in the middle ring side. So I was getting a little discouraged. I was trying to figure out how the hell do I get better seats than this? That was always running through my head, you know, cause I had aspirations of, you know, taking good pictures and, you know, even taking more better films and, And then when you get your seats and you look and you're like, I'm stuck right behind the ring post. What the freak is this? So I was getting I was getting very agitated, actually, about it. But, you know, like I said, the worm was going to turn not in the not too distant future, probably in another three or four months. Once the fall of um, 73 took place, that's when I got tipped off. And that's when things changed dramatically. You smartened up. It was uh, the November of uh, 73 show. Cause I know I had, you know, second row for Bruno winning the title in December of 73. So, and I know in November I was shooting pictures at ringside and movies. You know what? I, I, it's so funny to me. I'm just thinking right now. You were doing the Instagram
0: of 1973. You're trying to take the best pictures because you saw if I take a great picture, I can sell it to the magazines and sell it to the magazines and move up my career. Now people are taking videos and they're posting videos so they can move up their career. This is 1973, what Instagram was like in
1: 1973. You running around with your camera. 50 years ago, man. 50 years ago and i was i was becoming friends with this guy mike abrams who was a you know an amateur photographer i'd see him outside the garden when i'd hang out out there to kind of just hang out by the entrance at the garden and uh, he's the guy that eventually tipped me off it was like how did you how do you get first row seats like every month and then he told me the secret wow that's
0: amazing Well, let's get into this great card for the night uh new york city madison square garden saturday night june 30th 1973 20,987, just shy of a sellout. Bell time, 8.30, televised on HBO, featuring Vince McMahon as a commentary. Uh, First match, uh, Blackjack Lanza defeated Lee Wong via submission with the claw in five minutes, five seconds.
1: Horrible Lee Wong, man. (laughs) Uh, Lanza, of course, uh, you know, heard about him and how great he was in other territories. I mean, managed by Bobby Heenan in the AWA and yeah, just like a bona fide star coming in. But, uh, Lee Wong, Lee Wong was probably the worst physique of a wrestler. Just look at average Joe. He's very flabby. Uh, he had these like man boobs. Um, and he was just a horrible performer. I was better than him, (laughs) I think. I, I really th- think I was. I had a little bit more charisma than he did, for sure. His first appearance at the Garden was June 15th, 1970, and he lost to Akeem Mankuda in six minutes and 50 seconds. Was also voted the fourth worst wrestler of the entire decade of the 1970s. Uh, I think I was... Second to last. (laughs) Um, But yeah, his uh, body type uh, uh, pudgy would be actually a compliment. Well, Pudgy's a shape. Pudgy's a shape. Yeah, not really. But, uh, hey, who was in shape was Blackjack Lanz. I mean, he was tall, lanky, had that great iron claw. His first appearance at the Garden was on the last show when he had to win over Manuel Soto. And he stayed with the WWF for a very long time. I mean, when he retired uh, from active wrestling in 1985, he then went to work as a longtime road agent for the company. And he is a member of the WWE Hall of Fame as a member of the black jacks and that was from the class of 2006
0: I got a question for you do you remember how the blackjack started was lanza first or was it you know mulligan first or was it they both started at the same time i, I remember seeing you know uh, the black jacks i remember blackjack mulligan but the mm-hmm. tag team coming out of the AWA, the Black Jacks, I don't know if, if they if one of them had started before he got there or they were put together there.
1: You know, that's a really good question, because I don't know I don't know the actual origins of the team coming together. I do know when they were put together and called the Black Jacks with Bobby Heenan, who was also a wrestler at the time, and then became their manager. I mean, it was a dynamic uh, pairing up and they were just they were just incredible tag team. Big guys.
0: Really big guy. How What do you think? Very
1: tall dudes. Very tall dudes.
0: Big fan of Mulligan. Big fan of Mulligan. Uh, let's oh, yeah. go on to match number two. Professor Toro Tanaka pinned El Olimpico with a chop to the throat in nine minutes, 34 seconds.
1: One of the most spectacular finishing moves you'd ever want to see, the chop to the throat. <laughs> I mean, I was so sick of El Olympico at the time because he still wasn't wearing his mask. He still had that cutout hood, that little shower cap that it looked like. And Tanaka, obviously, was a mainstay there. But, uh, you know, it, it always still baffled me why he wouldn't put the mask on, even though mask wrestlers were allowed now to wear a mask as Mil, Mil Mascaris, uh had that rule changed when they brought him in. You know, a lot of people say it had to be a special arrangement with the New York State Athletic Commission just for moscaris. but you know, they should have fought to have Olympic go. But anyway the jig was up with him because he had this horrific ugly face anyway and um I think people wanted to see maybe the ugliness more than him with that silly mask that he used to wear.
0: Well, let's go on to match number three. I'm really interested about this one. Gorilla Monsoon Mm -hmm. defeated Captain Lou Albano uh, at 2 minutes 58 seconds after Monsoon knocked Albano over the top rope to the floor and Albano walked to the backstage.
1: Yeah, this was a TV setup. Albano had attacked Gorilla Monsoon from behind on a TV show, splitting him open. And that led to the grudge match at the Garden. And here's the thing with Albano. His matches were never really long when he had these feuds, like either it's against Strongbow or in this case, Monsoon, who those were kind of his main guys that he would have these single matches with uh, around the circuit. But the thing about Albano, I think that the excessive blood, he'd have a minute or so of a of of offense. Uh, His offense was a rake to the eyes, rake to the eyes, rake to the eyes. And then he'd rear back and and slug somebody. And then all of a sudden the tables are turned and then he gets hit and then he starts bleeding almost immediately. I think with Lou, uh, the length of the match was determined by how much of a gusher he hit. So if he hit a gusher and it really started flowing, then he He'd make haste and go back to the dressing room to get stitched up. You know, if he had a little bit of less blood, maybe the match lasted two or three more minutes. And he always did the same thing. It was never really getting pinned. It was always like, all right, I'm tumbling out of the ring. I'm just going to do almost like a bushwhacker walk back to the dressing room as he's spurting blood everywhere. You know what I find amazing about this? It's the third match of the card.
0: And people really do hate managers. Lou Albano didn't have a chance against Gorilla Monsoon, but people hate him so much. Two minutes, 58 seconds is more than enough.
1: Especially because of the heat. Albano drew heat. I mean, no matter who he was in there with, managing or, you know, in those rare times he put the tights on and and fought somebody. But the fans get get their money. They would get their money worth just by him coming out of the dressing room and strutting into the ring. Everybody knew he was going to get his ass kicked. No one could even imagine him going over against a Monsoon or a Strongbow or a Bruno or whatever. They were there to see him get his ass kicked. And if one minute, two minutes, three minutes, he gave them their money's worth. And it was always an entertaining part of the show. And no one ever felt like they were ripped off because the match was three minutes. It was like, all right, we came. We got what we wanted to see. We got To see him busted open and to, you know, to to go back into that dressing room with his tail between his legs. That's what set the fans off and made them happy.
0: Absolutely. You can also see this match on YouTube if you're looking for Gorilla Monsoon. um, Albano, So you can check that out. Uh, let's go on to match number four. Victor Rivera pinned the Black Gorman with a small package at 11 minutes, 34 seconds.
1: You know, good match. I mean, because they're so technically in tune with each other. They wrestled similar styles. Gordman and Rivera had this feud going. Uh, they've been been feuding up and down the West Coast as well. Uh, so great uh, performers. And they had that chemistry with each other. So it was, it was probably technically uh, the best match on the show that night. You know, would Rivera win? Uh, with the small package, uh, I would have to say it was the best match of the night. And Rivera is an interesting case study. I mean, he really is because he was always a solid B performer. Fans loved him. But, you know, he wasn't well liked in the back. And especially he got great opportunities and he always felt like he should be the champ and that was never given to him. Uh, they gave him tag team titles and 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 they gave him a tag team title. It was actually uh, him with Dominic DiNucci. Uh, they beat the Valiant Brothers and you know that was in 75 at the same time the IWA was starting up as opposition. Uh, you know they were trying to go national. And Rivera left. He was the champion with DiNucci. and he gets up and he goes to the IWA. And so they put Irish Pat Barrett in and they made him uh, Danucci's partner. But that pissed off Vince McMahon and he never forgot it, never forgave him for it. Even though Rivera was brought back, he was brought back as a heel uh, with Blassie managing him and that didn't last long. And then he just kind of disappeared. I mean, there were rumors that he got involved in the drug trade, that he disappeared. I mean, he was one. Of, he's one of the biggest mysteries ever. Uh, whatever happened to him? What was the outcome after he left the business and where did he go? Uh, because that's still to this day a question a lot of people have.
0: Oh, wow, that's interesting. And if anybody knows, please let us know. Uh, whatever happened to Victor Rivera? Let's go on to match number five. Joyce Grable and Jan Sheridan defeated Peggy Patterson and Dottie Downs in the best two out of three falls match, 20 minutes, 47 seconds, two out of three falls, women's match. John, what are you thinking here?
1: Longest match on the card, probably the worst on the card. I mean, these were all four Moolah girls. Joyce Grable was probably uh, the most uh, well-known in in regard to star power there. Uh, Peggy Patterson was tough. Uh, As was Dottie Downs. It was just a typical women's match. And, you know, you roll around with the referee, and, you know, it was just a lot of spots. And it was just, it was nothing special. There was nothing to it. And it was the longest, as I said, the longest match on the night. So at this point, uh, it's like, all right, let's see the main event already, you know? Well, let's bring out the main event. Match number six, WWF champion Pedro Morales
0: defeated George Steele the summer of George. The summer of George. When uh, the match was stopped because of blood, In 8 minutes, 16 seconds, after Morales repeatedly rams Steele's face into the turnbuckle and punches him after the bout, Steele attacks the champion until Morales gains the upper hand and chases him outside the ring.
1: George, the animal steal, just a great heel, and... uh... He and Morales had had interesting matches. Uh, the thing about George and this match being stopped due to blood, I mean, because it was it was always like the same routine with George. He'd have the foreign object tucked away in his tights. You know, the referee would chase him, especially Danny Bartfield, who was the referee. He was just a just a speedy Gonzalez in there. He would just uh, he was so good. And then when, you know, we uh, Barfield would be chasing George, George would go into the corner. Uh, he'd have the the foreign object in his mouth as as uh, Bartfield is certainly Searching his trunks, or he put it under his arm. Steel turns, takes the turnbuckle off, and then Morales reverses it and hits uh, George over and over again in that turnbuckle. And the one thing about George, he never knew how to blade himself where it would be substantial, where you can actually and it, and it it always he always stopped bleeding within a minute or so after he started blading himself. So he never really bled well, as far as what my memory goes, and in this match is no exception. You know, it, it was stopped because of blood, which was ridiculous because by the time it was stopped for blood, and it wasn't a long match at eight minutes, that blood had stopped. It stopped flowing, and they still stopped it because of blood. So that was kind of embarrassing. I mean, yeah, but Morales gets the victory. The fans go wild. It was not the very best uh, George Steele match that I'd seen, but once again, it gave the people what they wanted. They saw Morales. They saw their hero with his hands raised in victory, and you knew that because the match was stopped for blood, uh, it was probably to set up a return match.
0: Makes a lot of sense. It is also available on YouTube. The reason why I was saying the summer of George, not just making a Seinfeld reference, but George Steele, was he a teacher or was he a coach, a high school coach at the time? So he wasn't doing a lot of track traveling during the school
1: year. He was a teacher in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area. So he'd only wrestle during the summers. And then he'd go back to his teaching gig until later on in his life when he became a full-time performer and then eventually became a road agent for the WWE. But uh, he was that type of guy that he would only come around in the summer times. And you were like, why is this guy only wrestling in the summer? Then you went, like, oh, he, he's a teacher also. One thing about Steele though I want to bring up is like he was more of a tough guy in even the 60s when he first showed up and started feuding with Bruno I mean he was he was a good brawler he was very believable and then he got a little bit more crazy and it was very unpredictable and so he he really served a good purpose back then as this monster insane animal and he had that bald head and he had fur all over his body so he had a very cool gimmick as well and to see how he changed over the years. I didn't like the change at the end. I didn't like them making a cartoon character out of him with the green tongue and uh, mine was the, the stuffed animal and chasing Elizabeth around and, and then becoming a you know a baby face. And when they turned him into a cartoon, I was like, eh, this sucks. Going from the brawler that he was to that, it, it, that's huge. Let's go
0: on to match number seven. Jay Strongbow pinned Mr. Fuji with a double Tomahawk chop to the face in 13 minutes, 58 seconds. Just saying 13 minutes, 58 seconds, Jay Strongbow and Mr. Fuji seems like a long time.
1: Uh, yeah, probably seemed like an eternity. Uh, and I, I might have actually been looking at my watch at the time because I'm like, wow, you know, maybe I could take the 1040 train instead of the 1110 out of Penn Station and get home a little earlier or 1010. Uh, so, uh... To be honest with you, I don't even think I was there for the last two matches on this show. I think I got the hell out of there. Who wants to see Strombo on Fuji again? How many times can you see that? And you see the same thing, the chop, and then Strongbow does his war dance, and 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 that's it. It's the same pattern, same routine, and nothing against the guys. Obviously, they're legends, but uh, for me at that time, I'm like, all right, seen it again and again and again, let's get out of here and get that early train. And then for the last match, WWF Tag
0: Team Champion Haystacks Calhoun pinned Moondog Maine with a splash at 6 minutes,
1: 3 seconds. Now it's time to say goodbye to Moondog Maine because his time in the WWF is done. Absolutely. I mean, he did come in hot with a great feud against Morales. I mean, that one exciting match they had as the main event in Madison Square Garden in January of 73. Uh, Pedro pinned him in seven minutes, nine seconds. And that footage uh, I shot that night is on our Patreon account. And then he came back on March 26th and he had a curfew draw with Strongbow. He comes back and beats Manny Soto on April the 30th. And then he uh, goes to a draw with Tony Gurria. So uh, his time was about over. And, you know, with Haystacks, Calhoun, Penningham, the big splash, that was the end of Lonnie, Moondog, Maine and the Territory.
0: And I know you weren't there for that match. I'm sure you know. We since uh, it, it was the last match night, you were already on your train. But I, I, I
1: probably was. Already, I was eating a pretzel by the time that match went on, and a Coca Cola on the, and reading wrestling magazines on the train, heading back to Babylon.
0: I can just picture this. Uh, how would you rank the card? It, it seems like a, first of all, there's two things about the card. First of all, it seems like a weak card for what it was. It was supposed to. It should have been bigger because they were on HBO nationally.
1: Well, I mean, that meant shit to people, though, Tim. It was on HBO, but it really did. If you look at it, I mean, it was exciting to see the TV cameras there. Oh, really? It's like and you see McMahon, McMahon at, you know, an announce desk. And I'm like, all right, so maybe this is going to be on TV wrestling. But it wasn't. It was on HBO. And, you know, who really knew what HBO was even at that time? It was just but it was a different element that they brought into it. The fact that now there are cameras McMahon's doing announcing. So this is kind of cool to see that it's getting bigger You know, the perception was getting bigger. The idea was
0: always there, and that's what we always talk about on the show is
1: where things
0: started. That was the first time they went national. It wouldn't be their last. Look at them today. But this is where it all started. Our next show is at the end of the month, July 23rd, headlined by George Steele getting his return against Pedro for the title. And this time we have a guest referee,
1: Joe Lewis. Yes, the uh, former world boxing champion. And that was the thing to sell the show was Joe Lewis being the boxer, coming into referee, this feud with Steele and Morales. And that was the match that sold the tickets on july
0: 23rd well, i'm looking forward to that once again we want to shout out scott teal and crowbar press wrestling at the garden
1: yeah that is our bible and uh, crowbarpress.com if you want to pick up wrestling in the garden that book is just our bible like i said And we want to thank scott and also obviously richie garcia for all the research that he puts into this each and every month and um, you know we're planning on bringing carrie silken back and always a pleasure tim to reminisce with you on these shows
0: I, I i gotta tell you it's so much fun because you always open my eyes to other things that were going on at the time and bringing up the great old stories and if you want to hear and you want to see any of these things please go to our patreon patreon.com join the family join the history join the fun help us um bring these shows to life and keep the lights
1: on you got it tim i mean thank you for the plugs as always and yeah join that patreon page and looking forward to our next episode here anything else john no, that's really about it. That's uh, That wraps up this edition. <laughs> we'll have better cards coming up. We have
0: nothing to do with these cards. We didn't pick these cards, but we're just reviewing these cards.
1: Yes, I mean, what are you going to do? But it's great to tell the stories. It's great to share a little bit of the inside information about these uh, wrestlers at the day. And, and even the fact that HBO was airing this for the first time, it was historic. And one last time again, want to say RIP
0: to the Iron Sheik. Um, what, what a great wrestler. He definitely did change the world of professional wrestling, and he will be missed. He was no jabroni. He was no jabroni. For John Rizzi and Richie Garcia, I'm Tim Putray. We'll see you next time.